This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading will actually be Psalm 51, that psalm that we just sang. We're going to continue focusing and looking at that. So if you would turn to Psalm 51 with me. Begin reading in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much that though we are sinful, every one of us, You show us abundant mercy and grace through Jesus. Lord, it's because of your son's sacrifice, because he lived perfectly and he died in our place, that we gather here together as your people, that we have been brought into the church, that we've been brought into the body of Christ. And Lord, what a privilege it is to be here this morning to worship you. What a privilege it is that that you have taken us out of the world, out of our sin, out of darkness, and brought us into the light, and brought us into your church, not because of anything in us, but simply because of your good grace, because of your good pleasure. God, we thank you. We thank you that we're here this morning to worship you. We thank you that you care for us so deeply, that you provide for us day by day, that you convict us by your Spirit and through your word. We pray that you would continue to do that this morning. Lord, we recognize that there are so many in this congregation, 
that aren't feeling joyful right now, that are heavy, that are weighed down, that uh, are dealing with the burdens of life that come with this world that is so filled with sin. So Lord, I pray for comfort for those who are hurting because of illnesses, because of disease, for those who are hurting because of uh, being spiritually far from you. Lord, draw them back. For those who are hurting emotionally and in their relationships, God, we pray that you would give them comfort and peace, that you would remind them of your care and your comfort for them day by day, moment by moment. Lord, we are fully and completely reliant on you for every single breath that we take. Lord, remind us of that. Remind us that you are not a God who is simply far off, but you are a God who is near to us. Lord, that you are tender-hearted and kind to your people. And Lord, I pray that because of that, even in the midst of struggle and in the midst of sorrow, that you would help us to rejoice. Help us to find peace that's only available in you. Lord, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to hear your word, to sing your word, to pray your word. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts where they become hard? Would you warm our hearts where they become cold? Would you help us to be receptive to your word? to hear the things that you want us to hear, to learn what you want us to learn. Lord, help us to be more in love with you today simply because of your word, because of all that you have done, all that you have provided for us. Lord, I pray for Pastor Aaron as he preaches, as he speaks, that his words would be those that you have planned for him to speak, that your Holy Spirit would apply them to our hearts, and that we would walk out of this building in a little while, changed people, shaped and molded, as you have desired for us. Would your name be lifted up? Would the name of Christ be exalted this morning in everything that is said and done? In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So good morning, First Prize. Have to admit, I'm a little, little tired, a little exhausted from an awesome week at camp. God was very gracious. And I just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for making camp possible. Uh, the, the response of this church, every time we, we seek to pull off camp, I know Jamie and I and Dom and David and Desiree and all the team that work so diligently to make camp happen, we're just always blown away by the support, the moral support, the financial support, the prayer support that we get. Um, one of the things that really struck me this year was, obviously our kids have had a rough couple of years with covid and you could see uh, just the energy that they wanted to expend. They wanted to be together. They wanted to run around. And it was almost contagious, that energy. And one of the things that also God really uh, revealed this week, especially as you had opportunity to mingle with the kids, is the heavy weight that they experienced through the last two years. And it wasn't all because of COVID. It's just because of sin, brokenness, the world all around them. Uh, families that were torn apart, illnesses, death. There were so many things that these kids have experienced in the last two years. My heart was really heavy for them. And I realized the brokenness that they were experiencing. But, you know, it gives me great joy to be able to go to camp and point them to Jesus, to point them to where there is hope. As you spend time with kids, you, you learn what real smell is right? They don't, they don't shower all week, it seems like. They uh, bring wet towels into cabins. You, you go on a little bit of sleep. You, you're, ex, you're exhausted on every level and in every way. 
Um, it's amazing the things the kids can pack in their suitcases, the things they collect around the camp from sticks and stones and frogs and fish and all the things that they begin to accumulate in a cabin. Uh, it, it's amazing to see, though, their joy, their joy in a week of just being with each other, the friendships that are established. And so as I stated earlier, I just want to say thank you to First Prez, the church family, for making it possible. And I want you to know that the work we do there is important and it's kingdom work, and so thank you. Um, today we look at the 51st Psalm, and as we look at this Psalm, it, it really brought to mind one clear theme. You know, our, our summer series is about wisdom, but being wise is about being repentant. It's about repentance. It, it's about the idea of one who truly cries out for help. Now, I don't know what TV shows you watch at home or what things attract you, but there is a show that whenever it's on, I can't turn it off. I'm just captivated by it. The show is called Hoarders. <laughs> I watch that show in disbelief as I see the way some people live. They're literally buried in filth. You know, one of the things about that show is you start to walk with the individuals. You start to, to feel what they feel. There's a sense of embarrassment. There's a sense in which they're, they're, they're really off that people even are now aware of the way they live. But as you get through the layer of embarrassment, you start to get to the issues of the struggle you start to see that they really are not happy with life. They're not happy with their situation. They're not happy the, the, in the issues that lay before them, but they're too embarrassed to cry out for help. Every once in a while, there's someone on the show that's just irate. They're angry. They're angry that somebody would even show up and try to change their life. But as I watch that show and as I'm brought into the, to the life of those people, I begin to think about how that matches up against this psalm. This psalm is a picture of the spiritual battle of sin that we're all buried in. See, the reality is each and every one of us in this room is, is we're buried in filth. I want you to think about that for a moment. The overwhelming embarrassment bondage of sin, the struggle to resist temptation, the anger when somebody points it out in your life. See, we're not very different from the TV show Hoarders because we hoard sin. This week at camp, we had the opportunity to take the kids through the Lord's Prayer it was ironic to me that as I was preparing for this morning's sermon, that one of the petitions that Jesus clearly taught his disciples to pray often was forgive us our debts. He taught his disciples faithfully the need to cry out for help. He thought, taught his disciples the need to admit that they are piled under a rubble of filth and they need forgiveness. This is exactly what I see happening in this 51st Psalm. It's a spiritual cry for help. It's, it's one who says, I'm overwhelmed by sin. I need help. Ironically, the individual that writes this Psalm is a king. It's a king by the name of David. 
If you know anything about David's life, David was the one who defeated the great giant, Goliath. Uh, David had a lot of successes in his life. And in fact, David's given a, a unique title. He's known as the man after God's own heart. It's a title that for many of us, we think, well, that must mean that he, he sinned less than the rest of us. Well, this psalm would say a different story. This psalm would describe an individual who's overwhelmed by his sin. In fact, it would leave us wondering, how could David ever be called a man after God's own heart? If you don't know the story of David, David did something that he shouldn't have done. It began when all the kings went off to war, but he decided to stay home. And David decided maybe this time he was too good to go to war. Maybe he'll let everybody else fight. He's already done his part. And so he decides to stay back, and in doing so, we see that he was not where he should have been. He was not busy battling the things that he should have been battling. But it wasn't just that. We see David, that he begins to look. He's bored. He's got time on his hands. And so he just starts taking out the binoculars and starts checking out the scene of the city. He's got nothing else to do with his time except he captures in his, in his visual a woman who happens to be bathing on top of the roof. And he begins to stare. And he begins to crave and lust. So much so that he eventually acts out. As if this sin weren't enough, we realize that this woman is another man's wife. And the king just takes her unto himself. The story seems to end, except word is sent back to David that the woman Bathsheba is with child. David, now in a panic, begins to come up with a way to hide this sin. He seeks for ways to basically make sure that nobody knows that the king sinned. But his plan doesn't work. And eventually, in an attempt to cover his own sin, David commits murder killing the man who was faithful, who was off to war, serving in David's army, being loyal to God and to his king. Friends, when you read and hear that story, you realize that as this psalm is written, David must have come to a place that was very low. I would love to tell you that one morning David just woke up and realized, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I need to repent. I would love to believe he just flipped on some TV show that happened to talk about sin and all of a sudden he magically came to, came to terms with the fact that he had made some mistakes, but that's not the case. David lived in sin, hiding his sin for a while in the covenant community of the saints. The priests were doing worship regularly, the singing of, of, the, of the praises to God, and David would just go around doing his normal thing. Until one day, a prophet by the name of Nathan showed up. And Nathan put his finger in David's chest and said, you're the man. You're the sinner. It was at that moment that David was finally broken. It was at that moment that David realized that his sin was so great, he was, he was covered in it. He was overwhelmed by it. It was come crashing in. He had nowhere to hide. And so David writes this psalm. 
crying out to God, admitting his own sin and his desperate need for forgiveness. One of the things I would draw your attention to is verse 4. David makes a very interesting statement. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, as you hear the story about David, you begin to wonder, how can David make that statement? Surely David sinned against Bathsheba. Surely David sinned against Uriah, whom he had murdered. Surely David sinned against his kingdom. Surely David had sinned against all the people who looked up to him. But when David writes this at the lowest point of his life, he understands something many of us are not aware of. That when we sin, we ultimately sin against God. See, David understood that God is the one who sets the standard. God is the one who determines what it is to live right and holy-like. And God determines what it is that is sin and off-limits. So when we sin, we ultimately sin against God. And therefore, David was able to say, against you and you only have I sinned. And I believe it's in that moment when David came to that realization that really the meaning of his name, the, the theme of his life, a man after God's own heart, finally becomes crystal clear. David understands that he is a wicked individual in need of a savior because ultimately he has sinned against the one who created him. He sinned against the one who had called him and placed him on this earth to serve as king. He realizes ultimately he has disrespected his God. And his heart is broke. And he cannot be consoled. I, I envisioned that there were many who tried to say, oh, king, don't worry about it. God loves you. He's on your team. You do a lot for God. You, you defeated Goliath. You lead a, a pretty big group. I mean, surely everybody's going to mess up now and then. Don't worry about Uriah. Don't worry about Bathsheba. Don't worry about the offense of God. But David couldn't be consoled. And David's heart was wrenched. I, I picture that when he writes this psalm, he's alone and he, he, can't, be, he can't be consoled. And he, he just takes a, a paper to pen. I don't know if they do that then, but he, he, took, he took whatever instrument of writing he had and he begins to write out his heart. And he says, God, against you and only you have I sinned. He recognizes that his offense was ultimately against God. And friend, I believe that's the true believer's cry. Help. I'm sinning against you. Help. I'm overcome by my circumstance. I'm falling prey to temptation. Help. I'm being crushed by the guilt and the burden and the misery of my decisions. Help. See, friend, I understand that we as believers understand some detailed things about sin. The first is the need to admit it. As believers, we understand we are required to admit our sin. That's why Jesus taught his disciples and all of his fathers or all of his children, pray after this, like this, 
Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our debts. Forgive us. See, but it's not just simply admitting it. It's lamenting it. Do you know what the word lament actually means? It means to mourn. It means to cry. Mourning is actually crying. It's the idea of weeping bitterly over something. And as believers, I believe we mourn, we weep, we cry over sin. We can't help but admit our sin. We can't help but pray what Jesus taught us. Forgive us our debts. For they are many and they're all against you. See, the believer comes to terms with that. The believer understands that. And as David wrote, he got real specific. He didn't just talk generically about sin. In fact, he uses three separate words in our text to deal with sin. Just look at verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Each of those are specific terms that are used to describe his filth. When he uses the word transgression, he's saying, forgive me for crossing God's boundary. Forgive me for getting that you're sovereign and I'm not. Forgive me for doing it my way rather than your way. Forgive me for not adhering to your rules. And if that weren't enough, he gets into the details and talks about a term of iniquity, which really means his internal fallen nature. He admits in verse 5 that ultimately it was in sin that he was ultimately conceived, that ultimately within him he can do nothing good. That the problem isn't just outside actions, but the problem is within him. And he admits it with the term iniquity. And finally, he uses the term itself, sin, which actually means falling short or missing the mark. This week at camp, I went over to the Pacific area where there's archery. And the, the 45ers, which is our youngest crew, were over there picking up arrows. And there were a couple of them that took the arrows and they began to pull them back. And I kind of joked and said, oh, they're going to miss bad. I mean, these are 45ers. These are just the little guys. And to my chagrin, they just nailed that thing every time. I finally decided I was going to pick up an arrow. You can only imagine what happened because as I picked it up and as I drew it back, that arrow didn't go but three feet. I missed the mark entirely. And I believe that when this term is used, missing the mark, that's exactly what it means. It doesn't mean we're just a hair off like those 45ers. No, it means we're entirely missing the whole bullseye. And David admitted that about himself. I'm nowhere near clean. I'm nowhere near good enough to be king. I'm not even worthy to be breathing in my lungs. David understands who he is. And he admits his guilt and he laments his sin. And friends, I believe every true believer laments all of their sin. They hate it in every way. They hate the sin that is within them. They hate the sins that they do. They hate sin in its entirety. 
because they're missing the mark. They're not living up to the standard. They're crossing the boundary, and they're sinning against God. See, the believer recognizes something, that sin is encroaching and controlling Sin is barreling down on them, much like those who live in the houses of the hoarders. Notice what David says in verse 3. My sins are ever before me. In that show, Hoarders, there is rooms that are just packed to stuff that nobody can even enter. You can't even crawl because it's almost filled to the ceiling. You get these little aisleways where people are able to finally get to the kitchen or make a way to the bathroom. But that's about it because that's all the space they have. That's what David is saying. If I sin is ever before me, it's all-encompassing. It's surrounding me. It's taking up every aspect of my life. It's controlling me. And friends, I believe true believers understand there is no escape from sin on their own. Because here's the thing. I believe the greatest difference between a believer and the world is the recognition of their need to cry out for help. That's what makes us different. It's not that Christians don't sin or they sin less. It's that Christians know they need to repent. It's that Christians know they can't save themselves. Christians recognize that sin is overcoming them in every respect, and all they can do is cry out, looking outside of themselves, save me. That's the difference between a believer and someone in the world. And that was the difference between David and the pagans who didn't truly worship God. See, the believer, he longs for something. In verse 12, he says, Restore the joy of your salvation. David is experiencing a time of mourning and sorrow and pain and grief. And David can't be consoled. And so he looks to the only one who can truly help. And he looks to the heaven and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. For you and you alone are the only one who can help me. How desperately he desires to experience joy. We live in a world of depressed people. We live in a world of people that are struggling just to find a reason to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I return to that TV show Hoarders because as you watch that show, every once in a while, there's some change that occurs, some glimmer of hope, a smile or a laugh where the person has a breakthrough and they recognize that joy is possible. And that's the hope for the believer, that there is a joy that is possible, but that joy is not found in ourselves. That joy is found outside of ourselves. That's why David says, it's your salvation. That's where the joy comes from. It's not my work. It's not my effort, God. It's you. Restore to me that perspective. That desire, that love. See, 
See, it's because believers know that God desires our asking. And when we ask, when we come depending, when we come repenting, God is pleased. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. God desires the brokenness, the humility, the the reality of us admitting we're in need of help. That's the greatest breakthrough in the movie and the TV show Hoarders is when the people finally come and say, help me. Then all of a sudden, everything begins to change. The house begins to become empty and it becomes clean. And all of a sudden, they can move around and experience freedom. And you get every once in a while pictures of them living happy lives. You see the joy restored. And all God wants us to do is cry out, help me. See, the believer not only admits, the believer not only laments, the believer seeks to be clean. In verses 7 through 17, the believer isn't just content with feeling miserable. The believer actually desires to actually be made clean. According to the psalmist, he understands that the cleaning that needs to take place isn't just outward, but inward. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, ultimately, change my heart. Change my heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. Change me, God. In verse 7, he begs God to wash him clean. In verse 12, he seeks for his joy to be restored. In all these things, he he attaches them to the cleansing power of what God can do. Because we have a supernatural God who can deal with our sin and our suffering and our guilt and our shame and our bondage. And so the psalmist cries out, recognizing that help can only come from God. And so he cries, cleanse me, wash me, change me. Friends, that's what we understand today. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus came in person, taking on human flesh for what purpose? But to bring hope. This afternoon, I have to do a funeral for a man who died at the age of 45. Young man, younger than me. And I realized the pain and the suffering that that family's going through. See, death is robbery, isn't it? Death isn't the way it's supposed to go. But the one thing I will tell them that I will tell you this morning is this. Jesus entered the funeral and Jesus wept. When Lazarus, his friend, died, the shortest verse in the entire Bible is Jesus wept. And Jesus understands our suffering. But that's why he came. He came to turn all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the dirtiness and all the filth in our life upside down. He came to bring hope and joy and celebration. He came to bring cleaning. He came to bring change. 
And so in that moment when Jesus cried, I don't believe he cried because he didn't think he could change the circumstance for Lazarus. No, he knew he could. He cried because he felt the pain of everyone suffering and the loss. He felt the consequences of what the sin of Adam brought to the world in death and the struggle and the dirt and the filth. And in that moment, Jesus wept. I believe he weeps for us. As any good high priest, he stands in our place and he says, let me take your burden. That's why Jesus came. But see, it's only those who truly believe that are willing to reach out to him. It's only those who truly believe that will accept the terms of cumbling humbly and admitting their fault. The world would never do such things. And the fear is there are many in the church who act like the world, and the world says things like this. Let me just excuse my faults. How dare you even call it a fault? It's just the way that I am. If that weren't enough, the world will defend its righteousness and say, you know what, what we do is better than what they do. And if that weren't enough, the world would even go to the place to say, you need to accept it. At no time has the world come humbly and admitted their need. At no time has the world come and cried out, King Jesus, save me. They only want a king on their terms because they themselves want to rule. Friends, how many of us, that is our story. We don't really want to be clean. We really don't want the joy of our salvation restored because that means we have to admit we're in trouble. Just like the show hoarders, we're like those who are too embarrassed by our sin. We're too angry that anyone would even approach us and point anything out. But the believer, he's different. The true believer cries out to God for help. And one of the most remarkable things to me about the believer in this entire text is found in verses 18 and 19. When you read verses 18 and 19, they don't make sense to the rest of the passage. Verses 1 through 17 are really focused on the individual crying out, dealing with their own sin. But you come to verse 18 and it says this. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. What in the world does that have to do with David? See, I believe true believers pray for others. True believers who've experienced the grace of God want others to experience that same grace. The believer cries out for Zion. The believer cries out for all God's people. Do good Build up the walls. Protect them. The believer asks for protection from sin for all God's people. The believer who's been touched by the grace of God, the believer who knows his sin, the believer who mourns over it, is concerned with the well-being of others rather than just himself. Too many in the church today only care, do I get my ticket to heaven? You're saying, if I believe in Jesus, I'm free, right? 
And that's the way the gospel has been shared for generations. But friends, let me tell you today, that's not the gospel. The gospel is those who come repenting and believing in the finished work of Jesus because God's justice was laid upon him at the cross. Because God does not deal with sin lightly. Because it's an offense to him. And so those who truly hear the message of the gospel recognize their sin and they look to Jesus as their only Savior and they can't help but be changed. To be cleaned. To have joy restored. And they don't want to keep that joy to themselves. They want to share it with the world. We're assured of this, this promise of forgiveness in the picture of Revelation 21 where we're told that there will come a day where there will be no more weeping or crying or pain or suffering. This is a picture of the return of Christ and the restoration of the hope we can have. And we can be assured of that hope because God has promised that all who repent will experience it. To the most vile of sinners, like David, known as a man after God's own heart, there's hope. If we repent. See, Jesus came and he made clear his message in Matthew 11 when he said, I come. I come for you. He says ultimately this, come unto me, all who labor and are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're burdened by the weight of sin, if you're burdened by the filth of your life, if you're held down by the bondage of temptation, come to me and I will give you rest. Do you know what Jesus offers? Jesus offers renewal. Jesus offers revival. And friends, this revival is not an individual revival, but a corporate revival according to the book of Revelation. Where every tongue and every language and every people will sing the praises of King Jesus. Verse 19 points this clearly. This only happens when we confess our sins. For only when we confess our sins, only then will God delight in our worship. God has no room for the proud. God has no desire to be spoken well of by the arrogant. God seeks the broken, the weary, the overwhelmed, who are willing to cry out, save me, King Jesus. Friends, Psalm 51 offers us a sharp contrast between the one who is a believer and the rest of the world. The believer is one who truly repents, who truly cries out for help. But the question for each of us here in this room is, are we crying out? And if we are, who are we crying out to? Are we truly looking for help where help can be found? 
because this marks the greatest difference in the entire world between those who truly believe and the rest of the world. Who are you? Let's pray. Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away, Lord, from this text, I pray that the weight of the reality of sin would be ever before us until we repent. But God, once we have come to Christ, I pray that we would experience the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. I pray that we would know what it is to have the joy of your salvation, God, renewed. I pray, God, that we would find the hope that only Christ can offer. And Lord, for those of us who truly do believe, may we not keep this joy to ourselves, but may we pray and may we speak to a world that so desperately needs Jesus. The depression, the filth, the overwhelmed struggle of just living in this fallen world, Lord, is too much. But we are thankful for Christ who came and took on human flesh, who understands our weaknesses and weeps with us in our sorrows. But more than simply putting his arm around our shoulder and weeping with us, he's done something about it. So God, I pray that we would cling to Christ that he would be our everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.